Hello and welcome to Communities Forward. I'm your host, Joel Carter. Communities Forward seeks to share the stories and experiences of people who are making a positive impact within their communities and neighborhoods, especially in the St. Louis metropolitan area. Communities Forward podcast is brought to you by Rise Community Development. You can learn more about Rise and how we help make communities and neighborhoods stronger and healthier at www.risestl.org, www.risestl.org. Today's podcast is an interview with Philip Shangakoya, a banking professional in the St. Louis area and co-founder of the Business Resource Association for Networking and Development, better known as Brand of St. Louis. Brand of St. Louis is a social enterprise that collaborates with entrepreneurs and organizations to foster innovative community-focused partnerships. And Brand of St. Louis provides a community-oriented social networking service that combines the advantages of online technology with those of offline interactions to foster development and collaboration. They also help make an impact in the areas of diversity, equity, inclusion, and anti-bias and anti-racism. In today's podcast, Philip discusses what it means to be an accidental banker, the impact of being the child of immigrant parents, and his significant work facilitating discussions around anti-racism and anti-bias in the St. Louis area. Hope you enjoy. Um, Philip, thank you for being on today. Uh, it has been my pleasure to know you for multiple years. Um, and uh, under a couple of different umbrellas, uh, is that we've been able to have a relationship. Uh, do me a favor. So the first thing I always like to do for our audi- audience is, is to help them understand or get to learn about who this person is that we're talking to, that we're listening to. Can you tell us about yourself? What is your history? Where you're from? All those different kinds of things. Sure. And, you know, it's a pleasure to be on as always and, and love the time that we get a chance to, to talk together. So, you know, if I if I take it back in time a little bit, you know, I'm the son of two Nigerian immigrants uh, who came to the States, uh, youngest of four. Um, I was born and raised in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and I came up to St. Louis uh, for school, going to Washington University in St. Louis. And, you know, I was a WashU graduate who had a focus on entrepreneurship and small business. So I uh, went to the Olin Business School, got my entrepreneurship and marketing major. And then, you know, I've been in St. Louis ever since. I, I call myself kind of an accidental banker. So I got into banking right after school and that that opened doors into the financial industry, into business banking, and, you know, really found my passion for supporting small business owners, supporting entrepreneurship um, through financial skills and, and technical assistance from that perspective. So you're an accidental banker. What does that mean? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I, uh, I always had a passion for entrepreneurship and supporting small business. And, you know, as a, uh, as a Nigerian uh, son of immigrant parents, that's always the question of, you know, it sounds like you're following your passion in college, but are you going to do something that's going to get you a job? when you get out of school and now it's always in the forefront so you know that was just my approach of you know what, what is it going to look like to really get a job um, coming out of college if you know that your focus is really want to work with startups and support the entrepreneurship industry so you know I, I kind of came to a compromise and I realized banking at least got me right next to these business owners to provide a valuable skill around financial t- technical assistance, banking, how to get them loans and lines of credit. So I kind of learned that skill and fell into it as, as a way to kind of stay close to the industry, which was my passion. 
What do your parents do? Sure. My, my dad and my mom are both retired now, but my dad was a research chemist and then my mom uh, was a nurse. Okay. So, so our, m- most of our listeners will understand that. So I, I give, I try to send our guests questions beforehand. So everyone is prepared with the kinds of things I want to talk about, but I have this unfortunate ha- habit of going off scripts. Uh, <laughs> and I know you would not expect anything different from me. Sure. Um, as an off script moment, uh, you know, so this podcast was actually a radio program several years ago in St. Louis, and I had the privilege of interviewing you and your then fiance, wonderful wife now, uh, on that uh, radio program. Uh, but we've never talked about what it meant to be the son of immigrant parents. What has that, and I hope this comes across in the way that I'm intending, in light of what our nation has just gone through over the last year with the election and mm-hmm. Trumpism. And I'm not asking your political affiliation. Uh, what I'm asking is as a son of immigrants, um, how did that affect your parents? How did that affect your family, the community that you may have been close to based on nationality, those kinds of things? Were there any, did you all experience anything in particular? Was there a different way that you all viewed the entire uh, process of the election and Trump and all those different things? Yeah, no, that's a that's an interesting question. And, you know, honestly, it's a unique experience being the son of immigrant parents because everyone in this world, you know, gets conditioned through whatever their environment is. And I think the immigrant story is a unique experience where you have your own upbringing in another country. Right. And then you come to America and you're trying to kind of get that citizenship. You're trying to become American, if you will. And, and I think that's something that every immigrant has a different experience. And the way it landed for me, being the son of immigrant parents, I really had that focus of how do you try to kind of truly get that American dream and achieve the American dream, right? That's always what's, what's been taught to you. And then as, as I grew up over time, you, you kind of hold this mind state that there's, there's this meritocracy. And then I think as you, as you continue to develop being in America, you're seen as the black male, right? No matter what your ethnicity is, no matter what uh, complex background you may have. So as you get treated like a black male, you realize um, that myth of meritocracy and what's really out there. So, you know, you learn through experience what may not have been clear when you're kind of coming into the States being told what America is about. So I think that's that's been a unique experience of me just grappling with how I'm perceived and how I'm treated. And, and you know, it's complex because sometimes the immigrant story may lend itself to want to kind of be tied to that myth of meritocracy and want to kind of keep that image because that that's easy, right? Versus the reality of, you know, racism, systemic racism and, and clear um, oppression that maybe you don't experience if you um, choose to be under certain beliefs that might say, hey, I'm okay with how America is because it's a positive perception, even if it's not the positive reality. So, you know, it's a, it's a struggle sometimes just to realize how much there is perception versus reality and, and dealing with what it really means to call out injustice. I, I think that's something that is, is nuanced and it's always hard, but you, you, there's always truth when you speak truth to power, in my opinion. 
You use the phrase, uh, the American dream. So you said a couple of things I think are powerful that I'm going to follow up on if it's okay with you. Uh, you use the phrase American dream, but you refer to it in light of your parents. What was, what did your parents understand the, uh, the American dream to be? Sure. Yeah, no, great question. Um, in, in my opinion, based on what I was taught was, hey, go to school, get good grades, and that's going to lead to a great job. It's going to lead to great education. And no matter what, if you are excellent at what you do, whether it's academics, whether it's your profession, if you're excellent at it, you are going to rise to the top, you're going to be successful, and you're not going to have to worry about barriers and challenges if you just continue to focus on excellence. And so was that true then? That's not, uh, that, that comes across as a loaded question, I recognize. Because <laughs> sure. you're young. I mean, you literally are young. You are, I'm looking at you and you, and I'm, unfortunately our listeners cannot see your face, but you have more hair than, yeah, you have a big, big bro-man beard. Uh, the point <laughs> is, but you're still young though. You are still, you know, you graduated from college how long ago? Yeah, celebrating a 10 year anniversary uh, this year. Right, so you're still in your early 30s, mid 30s, maybe yep. at most. The point is, is you still have a lot of life left. Are you, has what they predicted or what they taught you, how has it come true and how has it in some ways not been fulfilled yet? Sure, no, I think it's something where it comes true when you think about the, the drive for excellence, the drive for, um, uh, high education, all that is important still, right? And I think, you know, if it wasn't for my parents' upbringing, I would have never gotten the academic scholarship that I got to go to WashU, right? So, you know, that was a huge change in kind of my trajectory, being able to to leave Baton Rouge, Louisiana, to go for school and to kind of be in a new area to kind of make of my own career, make of my own self. And, you know, I think I'll, I'll never, never forget being pushed in that way for excellence. But, you know, once you are on your own in the real world, you are treated and seen based on the color of your skin, right? So then you get treated as a black man. And, you know, I, I talk to my friends all the time, my college buddies, you know, as we recall stories about how you realize the difference between, uh, let's say, WashU campus security and St. Louis police, right? All of a sudden you lose that, that veil of being a WashU student or a WashU grad, right? You can't you can't carry that WashU card everywhere you go, right? So I think that's when you realize there's there's a difference, and maybe there's some sort of maybe a veil or that curtain that is lifted once you remove whatever you feel like you were putting up to kind of say, hey, you know, this should mean that I shouldn't have to deal with challenges, whether that's my WashU uh, degree or or what have you. So I, I think that's kind of part of where I felt that you see the difference. You used another phrase or a word earlier, meritocracy. I always try to make sure our listeners um, understand the, the words vocabulary that we use. What does meritocracy mean? Yeah, great question. It's the idea for me that, you know, there's always going to be that you're judged based on um, the quality and the values that you put up, that you, the work ethic that you put forward, and that if you put in the good work, if you do well, if you are successful, you'll be treated accordingly. And, and I think that's that myth where we all know that there's bias in all different systems where people who maybe aren't working as hard as you or maybe aren't showing up with the same quality of work 
are getting the same or better promotions and opportunities. And I think that's that myth of meritocracy that suggests that all everyone who does well and is the top of their class and is succeeding will be treated um, accordingly and given what they deserve, frankly. That's just not the case, unfortunately. Well, what's your response to someone who says, okay, you're talking about this. And, and as a side note, I think this segue is very clearly into what, you know, why I was so interested in talking to you in the first place about anti-bias, anti-racism training. But what is your response to someone who says, but you, you know, you, you are successful. You work for a bank, you went to a top, you know, 50 university, uh, obviously it's higher than that. Uh, but you get the point is you went to the, the university in the Midwest, uh, you graduated, got a job, uh, have a family, you know, wife, and if you, nobody's held you back. What is, how do you respond to that, that meritocracy or your view of meritocracy may be not lacking, but may not be as clear as it could be? Sure, yeah. Um, you know, all of that success, all glory to God, of course, you know, didn't come without challenges, without struggles. And I think despite those barriers, despite those challenges, I, I feel like I was able to be successful. And yet that doesn't mean that I shouldn't speak on injustices and um, discrepancies and, and lack of equity in the systems that I'm finding ways to be successful with and in. So I think that's, that's, part, of the, uh, that's part of the conditioning, you know, when you think about anti-bias, anti-racist, um, approaches when you start thinking about uh, white supremacy culture, right? I think some of those things that you think about are that, hey, if you're successful in this culture, you shouldn't feel like you should raise your hand and point out any issues in the culture. And I think that's a way to silence people to say, hey, you know, you've been successful. Why are you talking about these other things? And, you know, I feel like that's, that's a responsibility I have. Um, to still call out the issues where we see them, even if I was able to succeed despite them. That, does, that, that is unfair to the next generation. That is unfair to my ancestors who fought for me to have a better experience. I, I should never leave that for the next generation to say, hey, you just need to get through it just like I did that. In my mind, that just doesn't resonate with me. So this is important to you in multiple ways, but there's overlap with you and one of your organizations, Brand of St. Louis, who, which I want you to explain more about in a moment. But you are, through Brand, are leading anti-bias, anti-racism training. So tell us a little bit about Brand of St. Louis. What is it? What do you all do? And how did you all get into this process of training or giving, performing, leading trainings about anti-bias and anti-racism? Yeah, no, I, I appreciate the question. And, you know, I think being in the banking industry for, for over 10 years now, um, I started as a small business banker and, you know, I was focused on trying to get loans, lines of credit for small businesses in the St. Louis region. And, you know, as that role goes, you, you're forced to kind of always try to generate new numbers and new sales and find the best opportunities to close deals. And I think, you know, that's how capitalism works, right? And Unfortunately, you can't spend as much time to try to get deals that maybe aren't quite ready for approval to approval. You know, you're, you're almost forced to just focus on 
those deals that are ready to go. And due to systemic racism, that just happened to not be as many opportunities for business owners that look like me. And I think that was something I struggled with to my, to my core and my soul, you know, of thinking I'm in this system that almost suggests that I need to spend less time trying to help people who look like me get the same access to capital because of things that systemically kept them from wealth and, and strong credit and capital opportunities. So I think that was something I struggled with and I shared it with, with my girlfriend, Chevelle at the time, now wife, while we were in college, just thinking through that frustration because I had recently graduated working at the bank and, and she was um, just graduating at the time. And, you know, we, we talked through it. I shared my frustrations and I think we realized, you know, she has this uh, genius mind, by the way. Um, uh, she's an engineer by trade and she's constantly thinking about how to solve problems. And I think in her mind, she saw that opportunity of how do we solve this problem that our people, people who look like us, um, Black, African-Americans, Africans, are not getting the same opportunities to get capital. And I think that's where we decided to start uh, the Business Resource Association for Networking and Development. And it's the acronym that BRAND stands for to focus in the St. Louis region around how do we really connect entrepreneurs, small businesses with the right resources, with the right opportunities, so that down the road, they will be ready for that access to capital if they're not ready right now. And that was a gap that I just felt like was, was missing in the banking industry as a whole, that, that intentional handoff. Thank you so much. So what is ABAR? Yep. So ABAR stands for anti-bias, anti-racism. And it's, it's something that um, through my time um, at, in the banking industry, it's, it's been something where as I think through, um, for example, there's a consulting firm called Crossroads who introduced me to the concept of being anti-bias, anti-racist. And you know, they do amazing work um, across the country trying to kind of tell this narrative of it's not enough to just be colorblind or race neutral. That is not how we're gonna close the equity gap that has been intentionally widened for over 400 years, right? You have to be anti-bias, you have to be anti-racist to really make that change in a meaningful way. And I, and I think that's something that resonated with me after going through one of their um, programs of just thinking through what does it mean to be anti-bias, anti-racist versus just quote unquote focused on DEI, uh, for example. What, dig a little deeper. Mm -hmm. I want to dig a little deeper. What, when you say colorblind and race neutral, what do you mean by that? And why are those phrases or those mindsets not as adequate? Someone listening to this is probably going to be offended by you choosing to frame it that way. But why is someone who says, well, I don't see color. Why is that not as beneficial or effective, or if someone says, I'm trying to be race neutral, why is that not as effective as being anti-biased or anti intentionally anti-biased or intentionally anti-racist? Sure, yeah, it, it's, a, it's a tough question sometimes because it, it gets at um, the discomfort that some people have with acknowledging the racist practices of America for generations. And I think that's the part that you know you find discomfort with with some people who maybe say, "Hey, it was just a few bad actors in our system and our government over the past 400 plus years that led us to where we are." Right. So if if some people have that approach, it's just a few bad actors. Then 
sometimes they want to only focus on themselves that says, hey, I'm going to be colorblind and I'm going to choose to be race neutral. But all I hear in those kind of comments is that you don't want to acknowledge the reality of what's happened here in America. And you don't want to acknowledge the reality of what I go through as a black person. Right. You want to you want to see me as just a person and completely discount what I would have to go through by looking the way I look by being a black person here in America. And I think that's that's something that kind of takes a hands off approach as if there wasn't anything intentionally done to get us to where we are today. The problem is there, there were things that were unintentionally done, but you're right. There was more intentional that was done. I, it, I struggle because I have multiple white friends or mm-hmm. friends who are not black or brown or not people of color. And they say they want to be colorblind. And for them, that's a really good thing. And I, reckon, sure. I recognize their hearts and what their intentions are. But I always struggle because women, if you don't want to see color, then you don't want to see what it is that makes me who I am. Uh, you don't, you are unable to see what it means to have been a black man in St. Louis during 19, I'm sorry, you are 10, 15 years younger than me, but (laughs) what it meant to be a young black man who was influenced by movies like Boys in the Hood or Color Mm -hmm. or Men's Society and how, uh, or how a certain type of music, I I remember the first time I realized that an African-American or a black person of color was an artist, it was Jacob Lawrence. And I was in third grade and that changed me forever. Uh, It helped me realize that I could be an artist, I could be a painter and could have some success where every, up to that point, every, all the other artists that I had known of at that time were all white. And again, I was only however old I was in the second or third grade, but it's still the fact that I was, there were no other options or information out there that said, hey, here goes, or I was not in a system, I was not in an educational system, that's probably a better way of saying it, I was not in an educational system that made sure to distinguish or to show me that this was even a possibility. Right. So what is the difference between equity and equality? Yeah, great question. I think that's something that, you know, a lot of organizations, a lot of corporations struggle with, you know, what is their focus? Is it is it DNI or DEI, right? The E, in, in this case, really being equity versus equality, which would suggest, you know, moving forward, let's just make sure all the opportunities are equal, make sure that we're giving the exact same chances. And I think on its face, that there could be good intent there, but again, it ignores the generations of um, disparity and inequity Because, for example, when you think about entrepreneurship and small business, imagine how much wealth was lost and not able to be accumulated by some of the race covenants that are in um, communities that basically said you couldn't sell any of your properties to a person of color, right? And I think that's something where there were intentional policies that made sure that there was no transfer of wealth um, to, to Black individuals. And then if you think of the, the biggest crime of them all being slavery, right? You're, you're taking advantage of someone else's labor and using it as your own to build your own wealth. So, right, just the, that general concept, if you didn't understand any other concept besides free labor to then put into your, to your own capital gains, your own wealth creation, and then you transfer that wealth to your families and your communities, and it never transfers into the communities of those who built this land and, and built these systems, right? 
the fact that we've never had reparations to truly rectify that wealth disparity, right? So now if you come to 2021 and say, well, moving forward, we wanna just make sure that all opportunities are equal. Of course, in entrepreneurship, there's gonna be places where you have um, more white families who are ready to make the jump into entrepreneurship, right? There's so much savings still saved up. There's so much wealth from that's being passed down that you have comfort to take more risk than let's say somebody who doesn't have that wealth transfer and maybe they are only focused on working a nine to five, right? And knowing how much you have to risk to then go into entrepreneurship to really truly make it and what all that comes with. So I, I think it's just something where once you start thinking about equality, you just, you limit the scope of where the problem truly started and, and you present options that really just aren't going to cut it because of all of the background tied to why we are where we are today if you look at data in 2021. What does the data say in 2021? Oh, I, I could go on for days about that, but you can pick any industry, honestly, um, whether it's banking, whether it's home ownership, whether it's entrepreneurship rates, whether it's access to loans, all of them tell the same story that shows a significant amount more benefit and opportunities for white families versus black families versus Hispanic families, uh, what have you. And, and I think that's something where, you know, we're almost too dated out, right? We've had so many reports that I almost feel like we're at this point where we only wanna tell the reports and show the data because that, that feels like to some people we're doing the work of, of solving the gaps. And I, I struggle with all the data reports that come out because we need to be more focused on actually doing the work to close those gaps versus further documenting how many more times a white family uh, has wealth to transfer to their families versus black families. We, we know why and we know the, the context behind it. So I don't know how much more data we need to then decide that we need to do things about it. But that's just my own opinion. So what is, give me a couple of examples of the work that can be uh, engaged in to close the gap. And I, I was going to ask you about reparations, but I think that that probably sends this conversation over the top, sends some of my questions over the top. But what is some of the work that can be done to close this gap that you are, you've identified? Sure. Yeah. So I think for us, you know, we've we've really started with what we can control, which is um, providing more resources to entrepreneurs through Brand of St. Louis and through our Startup League Rewards Program, where we're using um, dollars from from our own um, budgets, from our own accounts, to really reward entrepreneurs, specifically Black entrepreneurs, for navigating the St. Louis entrepreneurship resources that are available to them. And you know, part of that is something that we have a theory of change that kind of suggests if we were to incentivize black entrepreneurs to engage in this ecosystem that supports small business and entrepreneurship, we're going to see that they're going to celebrate those small wins. And we know that black entrepreneurs need that extra capital. So we're providing that extra capital based on them going through applying for a grant program or applying for co-working space to really build their business or even entering a business pitch competition. And honestly, we know that they may be the only one that looks like them in the room or in that program because not enough of us engage in the resources that are available for everybody, right? So we know that there's reason behind that and we're trying to just incentivize more engagement while on the other side, working with these ecosystem partners to really do some more consulting around what does it mean that you don't have enough black participation, you know? 
are you just blaming black entrepreneurs for not finding your program or are you willing to do the due diligence to figure out are there things and barriers that are making it exclusive and maybe uh, raising the barriers as to why they're not choosing to engage with you so really asking those critical questions those are that's kind of the two-sided approach that we've taken um, as a social enterprise to work on both sides of that thank you what are what are some of the you, you alluded to them just now and you know business pitch things like that what are some of the opportunities for for people of color, for women, for whoever, who want to start their own companies, who are looking to connect with funding streams, how do they, how can they understand how to do that? Or how can they uh, identify those types of resources? Yeah, great question. And, you know, I think it's something where you really have to think about what's out there available, whether it's through your local banks, through local credit unions, through your chambers of commerce. And I think there's so many organizations out there that provide free to low cost resources and programs. We, as Brand of St. Louis, we really feel like our job is to just curate enough of those resources and kind of bring them in a digestible way to our clients so that they don't feel overwhelmed with everything out there. Because as soon as you feel overwhelmed, your reaction may be to just give up and not try. So we try to sit down with them to really walk through all of the things that might be in our newsletter, for example, we, we curate an online newsletter to send out those different things that are happening. But then we'll also sit down with our clients who are in the Startup League Rewards program to really walk through which ones make sense for them. And I think that's the part that there just needs to be more handholding, more, more support to kind of be their advisors to see what's all out there, but to figure out what's the next actionable step for them based on where they are at their business. So if somebody wanted to get a copy of this newsletter, how would they find out about that? Yeah, no, we, uh, we put it out online. Uh, you can follow us on social media. Um, it's the brand of STL on Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, and Twitter. Um, we try to send that out periodically just so that people can see the different opportunities to connect and to learn more about our, our program. And we also have our website, www.brandofstl.com. Thank you. So we only have a few moments left, a few minutes left in the in this podcast. I want to, you are an emerging leader and I hope you take that in the wet spirit that I'm giving you, you know, people recognize um, you are on the young, you were on the young professionals board for RISE for an extended period of time and uh, graciously served um, our community that way, but you are a young rising leader. What type of advice do you have for other people who are, striving or hoping to become leaders within St. Louis, whether in banking, community development, the DEI, the ABAR space, whatever it is, what kind of words, what do you wish you knew then that you know now as it relates to being a leader in St. Louis? Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, I, I always humble myself. So, I, you know, I, I wouldn't be in the position I would I'm here today if it wasn't for God. So, you know, all glory to God. And, you know, I would say my family wouldn't be here without them as well. And even my wife, Chevelle, uh, she's the brains behind the whole operation. But, you know, if I, if I thought of what advice I would give myself was, you know, take every interaction you have and think about what the learning lesson can be as to why you're in that situation. And I think that's something that 
you have to kind of lead by faith in that perspective because there's always a lesson in every conversation you're having, even if it's a negative conversation or a tough conversation. And I think that's where a true entrepreneur finds opportunity in, in the conversations, in the, the being a fly on the wall in rooms and really listening for where's that next opportunity to, to provide value to somebody. And I think the more you provide value to people, um, the more people will see you um, for your actions and who you are and, and not question your intent. And, you know, you'll be able to continue a, a strong brand. And I think your brand and your, your name reputation goes a long way um, with being a leader. But also, you know, it's never going to be easy to be recognized in that kind of leadership capacity. So always just remember that somebody's watching you, somebody's being inspired by you, even if you don't get that credit. So never wait for that credit to kind of acknowledge your leadership. Just step in your true power, step in your true strength, and, and just have that faith that you're here for a reason and you're doing the work that you were sent here to do. Um, and that may be, honestly, creating your own table versus waiting for, for a chair to be extended to you uh, at, this, at the table on the other side that you're waiting and thinking that you're earning based on this myth of meritocracy, right? So just be okay with kind of, doing things on your own, knowing that if you're doing it for the right reasons, you'll be recognized one way or another and uh, you'll benefit one way or another. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Philip, for taking the time to uh, sure. have a conversation with me. Uh, I, as always, uh, blessings to you in your future. And uh, I look forward to having you on the podcast again in the very near future. Thank you. It's always a pleasure. Appreciate the time. And tell your wife, I said hello as well. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. This is your host, Terrell Carter, and I hope that you've enjoyed today's episode of Communities Forward. If you're interested in finding out more information about our guest or brand of St. Louis, please check out their website at www.brandofstl.com, www.brandofstl.com. Thank you and tune back in again next week.